When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Episode 69, Amy Jo Mathias, CEO of Pavo Navigation Coaching. What's your favorite mistake? I, I have three. I'm Mark Rabin. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes. Because we all make mistakes. But what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is the place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. For show notes, links, and more, go to markgraben.com slash mistake69. Please follow, rate, and review. And if you like the episode or the podcast, please share it on social media. Share it with a friend. Thanks. We're joined today. Our guest is Amy Jo Mathias. She is the founder and CEO at Pavo Navigation Coaching. She has worked in international development, government, higher education, and religion. She's been a professor and a pastor. And she works a lot now with high-tech startups. She's managed teams, built roadmaps, facilitated groups, navigated boards, set vision, and led thousands of people to bring them into form. So Amy Jo, thank you for being here today. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. It's it's always fun to hear um your like bio summarized like that. It's like, oh, I did I did do all that stuff, didn't I? It's kind of like a reminder, <laughs> a nice reminder, you know. So thank you. It's fun and I'm I'm happy to be here. Yeah, well, good. Well, hearing that hopefully then is a bit of a, a positive boost, get get you hyped up <laughs> to have a good conversation here. Definitely. Um, Amy Jo's website, and we'll mention this again at the end, and it'll be in the show notes, is Pavo Navigation. Dot com. That's P-A-V-O navigation.com. Um, so there's a lot we can talk about here today, Amy, Amy Joe, but uh, so my wife is Amy, so I'm going to have to make sure I don't just uh. out of muscle memory <laughs> say yeah, Amy. No. I, I apologize, Amy Joe. No and my problem. wife listens to these episodes sometimes, so she's going to hear my mistake, but okay, that's behind <laughs> me now. Amy Joe, um, we've heard my most recent mistake. What would you say, looking back at your career and all the things you've done, what's your favorite mistake? Yeah, I love this question. And I've been thinking about it a lot in preparation for this podcast today. Um, because of course, as I said, when we, when we met, um, earlier is like, gee, which, which one do I want to choose? Because I've certainly made a lot of them. And, um, I think, um, I, I have three, and I'm going to start with the third one first, um, which is um, because literally before getting on this call with you and, and your listeners, I, um, I was just coaching somebody, somebody else in, in, um, in the startup world, and we were just talking about this, um, which is the mistake of needing to know the answer or needing to think that I had to be right. Right. Like, um, and what I was sharing with, uh, 
my client is um, when I was a pastor, um, you know, I, I, I'm a biblical scholar and, you know, you, you study for four years in graduate school. You, you come into this position where you're supposed to be this leader, you know, and, um, and you're supposed to have, quote unquote, the, the answers, the right answer, the right way of understanding. And um, I felt both like good and not good about that because I, I, I would, I'm an excellent scholar and I felt really strong about being able to communicate that. Um, I was also a young woman and um, coming into a congregation full of all kinds of not young women. And, um, and so um, what I found was that um, people were not shy about telling me when I was wrong or when they perceived me to be wrong. And, um, and what I wish I would have done, uh, because what I did was I argued with them. <laughs> oh, <there. Yeah. laughs> right. Like I are, because here I'm the theologian, I'm the biblical scholar. I'm the one who spent all this time, um, investing and, and researching and studying and learning Greek and learning Hebrew and all this stuff. Like I, and, and so I would argue about because these were very topical things that we were discussing, right? LGBT, LGBTQ rights, women's rights, um, environmental actions, um, all um, how do we understand these scriptures? And so I was very passionate about it. And um, so I think that instead of arguing it to be right, what I would do now and what I do do now is I allow for curiosity to lead instead of being right to lead. And, and, and do you mean your curiosity when you're being challenged or the person you're maybe debating, arguing with? Right. Um, it starts with my curiosity, because if I get curious, then um, I create space for them to be curious. Um, and so... Um, for instance, in that situation with the scripture, which is, which is kind of a good example, actually, because like, um, my per, my perspective and perception on, on scripture is, um, you know, it's always interpreted by every single human who interacts with it. And that's true for everything, right? So it's going to be true for any kind of thing that we are all debating about or talking about or, or looking at, um, and my way of thinking is there isn't ever just one right or wrong way to look at something, right? So that curiosity, even though I have a very strong stance, like, so, so let's take, for instance, the LGBTQ question, um, what I wish I would have done with my parishioners is said, well, you are 100% right that there are multiple ways of understanding these words, and these texts and your way of understanding them is certainly one of them. My foundational belief is that these, this book that we call the Bible is primarily its foundational belief is that every single human is precious and valued as they are. And so your way of looking at this violates that for me. So I can't affirm that, but it's like, it would have been, like not making them wrong and me right, but opening up the conversation to allow for more and then that allowing for more conversation. Mm -hmm. So when did you start becoming aware of this dynamic that 
you're arguing that might not have had a positive effect or it might've been frustrating <laughs> or both. Like when, I'm always curious, like when, when do people start getting an inkling or start to discover that, okay, wait a minute, this might be a mistake. Right. Um, well, that leads me to my second uh, favorite mistake that I wanted to offer uh, your listeners, which is um, staying too long in a role and in a place that you, you just know it's time to go. Right. So what and was so, that situation? Um, well, how many times do you want to <laughs> learn? Like, um, definitely being a pastor. Um, I think definitely when I was leading, um, an international nonprofit, um, and, um, like I knew, um, I, I knew I needed to go because I, I knew that, um, let's take the pastor piece. I had outgrown that and I had come to another understanding about for me, what I believed was true about how the world works. Um, and, um, so I could no longer, you know, preach something that I did not, I did not support anymore. And, um, and attached to that, and it's the same thing with the international nonprofit. Um, I understood that, um, that no matter what I did, the dysfunction in the board and in the therefore the programs weren't they weren't going to change. Um, and in both places, and I see this with my clients now too, all the time. Like we think it's our responsibility to fix something that's not working. Like I'm I'm going to fix this, and um, usually, and this is a I think this is a great piece of wisdom for all of us. Um, no, you're not. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like that's not for everything. Like, yeah, you're not. Well, especially for um, you know systemic processes and systems um, that were in place before you got there, and maybe if you're in a startup, weren't in place before you got there, but have you have been part of developing or been part of participating in, if they're dysfunctional, um, systemically, they are not something that one person can change mm -hmm. or fix or, yeah. or make better. So, uh, so going back when you said you outgrew, you had outgrown the role of being a pastor, you didn't just leave and go to a different church. You, do, do I understand right? You stopped being a pastor. I did. I did. Yeah. Um, because I, well, there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, one, as I referenced earlier, I, I came to understand that I no longer believed the story. Um, and part of that was because of the exclusivity and the separation that I witnessed it creating. And, and, and I just couldn't, I couldn't, that's, I just couldn't continue to support that. Um, the other piece was being a woman in the church and being a woman leader was incredibly difficult. Um, talk about, talk about going into a, a male club profession. I mean, that is the ministry, right? That is one of the oldest. Um, and, and it's alive and well. And so it was very, the two together, I just couldn't, couldn't, um, couldn't actually, let me restate that. The two together, and this is an answer to your question previously of like, how do you begin to notice, right? right. right? Um, 
I was, um, you know, anxious more often than not. I was always worried about how I was going to be perceived. I was um, over preparing for everything and still not able to get done what I wanted to get done. Um, um, and, and this goes back to the needing to be right all the time and arguing my case, right? Like the, the reality ended up being that the congregational members and, and the leadership, they, they just weren't going to do it no matter what. Like, they weren't going to start the preschool. They weren't going to vote for, um, uh, for what we in the Lutheran church called reconciled in Christ congregations, which would mean we were, we were open to LGBTQ pastors. Like they weren't going to vote for that. They weren't going to, even though I had done quote unquote, everything, you know, right. We'd had all these educational classes. We'd, I'd prepared everything for the preschool to start. And the other two, like there wasn't there, there, it wasn't that I was wrong or did it incorrectly, but there comes a time I think where we look honestly at the landscape that we're in, and we admit what is real. And that can be incredibly challenging to do because once we see the landscape for what it is, then we get to make a choice. Yeah. And so it sounds like in in, in both of those kind of uh, types of mistake of the, the wanting to be right, the arguing, the, the staying too long in a role, that there, there, there was a pattern that at some point you had the recognition of the anxiety and the worry and you kind of trace back, well, what seems to be causing this? Is that fair to say? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, and, and always like those, um, the feelings of the, the, I call them our somatic indicators, like our body is our, one of our best um, allies who, and, and they give us all kinds of signals about, about this stuff. Right. And so not sleeping, um, consistently feeling, feeling a tightness in my chest all the time, having a nervous tummy, um, you know, and I think too, simple things like just not having fun, being stressed all the time. Um, uh, Feeling like I was, I, I was needing, and this is this is really true for a lot of people in their workplaces. Feeling like I'm needing to walk on eggshells all the time, like I'm, I have to be very careful about what I say and to whom I say it to and how I say it. And um, those are all indicators of, I think you know, work environments that are um, that are not healthy places to grow and learn and innovate and create in. Yeah. Yeah. And I've had a couple of other guests talk about listening to your gut and developing intuition and, and they'll point to similar things. Like you were saying, like there's, there's something, there's something to be said for listening to your gut of like, I just feel com- constantly uncomfortable in a certain situation. And maybe even if you can't explain why that recognizing that feeling could either say, well, I'm going to remove myself from that situation, or maybe I can figure out why. And then I think you raise a really good point. Is it fixable or not? Can I fix it? Or or do I need to just remove myself and find something someplace else? Right. 
Right. And, and I, I think one of the, uh, another question that goes along with that, is it fixable is um, what is mine to fix, right? Which is even if I might say, yeah, it's fixable. um, Then I look at my role and my purview and say like, okay, and what is my arena of choice here? And will that have impact? Um, you know, and, and if, if anybody's feeling any of this, like in any of your listeners in, in, um, in their workplace right now, one of the things that I recommend my clients do is, um, you know, once they've asked the question, is this fixable? And what is the arena that I have choice in? Um, and they identify something that they can choose to do that maybe may amend it, may, may adjust it to the point that it's okay to be there, um, set a timeline for yourself. Like, okay, I'm going to take this action. I'm going to follow this process. I'm going to give this feedback and I'm going to, I'm going to say, <clears throat> I'll give it four weeks or six weeks or whatever. And, and for, for, for some adjustments to be made, um, because part of what happens is we take steps and then it takes forever and then leadership doesn't respond and then we're waiting and, and then pretty soon a year goes by and two years go by. And what, ha- you know, what happens is we get, we get hurt, you know, we get wounded and, um, and we're also not very good at that. We're, we're also not very good at, um, expressing that and allowing ourselves to talk about the wounds from the toxicity and so we get bitter and we get angry and we get um, uh, kind of brittle, you know, and that's that's not good for us and it's not good for anybody else. It's not good for our family. Um, and that's how toxicity spreads. Yeah. Yeah. Because people people start snapping or kind of lashing out and you're not sure, well, why? But it's it's yeah, that that deeper rooted frustration. Yeah. And, and right. And, and also I think they, you know, I'll, I'll say we, you know, we, we, we back to being careful and cautious. And so maybe we have a question, but we don't ask it because we're afraid if I ask the question, I'm going to expose that I don't know something or um, it just doesn't feel safe. And if in a work environment doesn't feel safe, what happens in, to put it in a general space is um, we shut down. And when individuals shut down, so does communication, so does innovation, so does, you know, um, problem solving, all of that shuts down. Right. Yeah. Without, as as some frame it, and I'm a big fan of the work of uh, Amy Edmondson at Harvard. I'm, I'm hoping she'll be a guest on, on the show here to talk about what she frames as psychological safety. The, the, mm-hmm. the, the feel, feeling safe to say in a nutshell, I'm paraphrasing, feeling safe to say what's on your mind, to speak up with ideas, to speak up about problems and that you're not going to be uh, blamed, bullied, harassed. I'm I'm paraphrasing, but I think directionally. Yeah. That's true to what she has seen from her research without psychological safety. You can't have innovation or problem solving or improvement. Our brains shut down the, our, our fight or flight instinct, our reptile brain takes over and that's not good. Totally. 100%. And, and um, it, the thing is, right, is um, it doesn't have to be this way. But most 
workplaces actually operate like that um, without the psychological safety? Um, because I, and my, my perception is because um, we, we have learned that domination is the way to get people to do what we want them to do. Um, fear and, and um, uh, you know, goals that are impossible to meet, <laughs> you know, are, yeah. are set for the sales team because that's what's going to get them motivated and, and going and, and competing um, as opposed to um, achievable goals. Right. Or, and, and, and so when we, when we lead with domination and, and fear and threat, um, yeah, that's what we get. We get it back. There's, there's probably an evolutionary trait or two in that mix of what was helpful for prehistoric uh, people. And some of this for different reasons, maybe, you know, natural selection of more of a male trait in a lot of ways of what was helpful in the past doesn't serve as well today. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I think um, one of the one of my areas of scholarship is in the um, history of how patriarchy came to wipe out um, matriarchy and matrilateral cultures, which also associate were associated with goddess worship and sacred feminine as opposed to patriarchy, father rules and sky God and monotheism and all of that stuff. And that's, that is a very interesting, um, massively understudied, uh, arena that also talks about how we got to domination as opposed to collaboration. Um, and, uh, so yeah, I think it goes back to, you know, when we're running away from saber tooth tigers, but I think it also, there's also another piece of the, of the history there that, um, the patriarchal, tribes from the steppe region over a period of thousands of years, you know, just overwhelmed the other cultures and um, they were warriors and these people were not. And, and that's also how we came to get to where we're at today. So either way, what we know is it's really, really deeply ingrained in us. Yeah, right. <laughs> like we've all learned it very, very well. Yeah, for sure. Um, so Amy Joe, before we talk about, um, yeah, I'd like to talk a little bit about your work, um, you know, in Silicon Valley, um, but you, you had a third story that, that oh. you wanted to tell. Oh, thank you. you for remembering that. Yeah. My third one is a lesson that I, um, I learned, uh, the hard way, um, in, and it's this lesson that the company will never love you back. And, um, you can, you can take out company and put anything in there. So for me, the first time I learned it, it was the church was never going to love me back. You know, the institution is not going to love you. Um, and this is a hard lesson for us to learn. In fact, I was just talking to a client about it today, um, which also affirms like, okay, I'm going to talk about this with Mark because um, we, we, love our companies. We love products. We love our teams. We love, you know, we spend all our time there. And so we give and we give and we give. And sometimes, oftentimes we're, um, especially for, for startups that are scaling quickly, kind of asked to cut our, cut our, cut ourselves and give our blood. And, um, 
and at, there's a point in there where we need to realize this is not going to be remunerated to me. Like, yes, yes, I'm, I am receiving an excellent comp package and I have equity and, and that's, that, that's as it should be, right? And that's for, you know, 50 hours a week kind of thing. It used to be 40, right? Now, <laughs> right. like we can say average, people are working 50, 55. When it, it, those boundaries need to continue to be set, Right. And one way to help liberate ourselves to do that is to say, wait a minute, <laughs> this this company isn't going to love me back. I'm going to give until they don't need me anymore. And when they're done with me, they're going to let me go. Well, and so that, yeah, that does not sound like you could use words like love or loyalty or um, that, yeah, there, there's that transactional, I'm working super hard, they're compensating me well. That's different. That's, that's transactional as opposed to a longer term uh, commitment between the company and the employee. And there's probably this fine line where, you know, this is not the old, um, you know, there are downsides to the old Japanese model of lifetime employment. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad had uh, one paycheck his entire life, and that was General Motors for 40 years. Yeah, I've had a very different path where um, I've had, you know, and, and so there, there were times where I felt like, yeah, there was one time a company was not loyal to me. You mm-hmm. know, I got laid off by a company a few months after 9-11 and eventually had a chance to come back to said company, which, you know, was fine. And then there are times where I've left companies for good reasons where I, I, I feel like at least in one case, they felt like I wasn't returning the love. Mm-hmm. the loyalty or the investment they had made in me. But I'm like, well, my wife's taking a job in Texas. What can I do? <laughs> but I right. think, you know, people are going to view it the way they, lo- they they view it. So it's interesting to think of those changing dynamics, not just around work hours, but what is the expectation around loyalty? Yeah. Ooh, loyalty is a good, good question. I mean that, you know, it's, it's funny. I was, I was just with a, a founder that I'm coaching this morning and, and, and we were talking about setting up, the setting up the system. What is it? What's it going to be like? And they were saying, I think it would be really excellent to integrate a program where we tell all our employees, look, there's going to be a time when we're going to separate from each other. We know that either you're going to choose to leave us or we're going to ask you to leave, right? Like there's, you're not going to spend your whole life with us. Um, So one, we just want to make that clear. So that everybody's aware of that. And two, um, that doesn't mean you don't love the, the product or love the company or love your work or have loyalty to it. It just means that there's there will probably come a time when something like your wife taking a job in Texas means that you need to, to separate. Or um, you feel like you've learned all you can here and now you're ready to move on to the next place. Or like there's all kinds of reasons. But instead of making them like negative or making that somehow like not loyal or wrong, presencing it right in in the beginning and saying, and so therefore we have this program where when you depart, this is the severance you'll get and you'll get a coaching um, session with our coaching team and you'll get access to our network so that to help you move to where you want to go next. Um, it's such a much more unifying freeing, um, uh, allowing model, right? And the funny thing is, 
is that will keep you loyal, right? Like if you leave that company who's actually helped you have a healthy departure and also given you support for your next step, you're going to talk about that company highly. Yeah. There are companies in different industries that are known for having a strong alumni network Uh in in different ways. Sounds like an example of what you're describing. Right. Exactly. So, um, yeah. So I I want to also ask though, when you, you know, you talk about Silicon Valley and I think you, you and I, Amy Joe, are aligned from what I've, I've seen of, of how you describe situations that mistakes are learning opportunities in some mm-hmm. way. Whatever happened in, in our past, including our mistakes, forms who we are today. Um, so we're, we're aligned around that. And I know personally, you know, uh, I'm hard on myself when I make mistakes. I try not to be hard on others when mistakes are made. But, you know, in Silicon Valley, the one thing I think is really fascinating is this idea of supposedly like, you know, embracing failure, fail fast, fail early. Is that easier said than done? Like companies or, uh, you know, or Silicon Valley as a whole can, you know, sort of, you know, spout, spout's not the right word. That's not a nice sounding word. They, but they, <laughs> they, can, they, can, they can spout these ideals but then when it comes to us as individuals and as complex as individuals can be, long, long question shorter is embracing fail fast, fail early, easier said than done. Absolutely. <laughs> and I <clears throat> keep in mind, that is um, a phrase meant for the product designers and the engineers, right? Um, companies are a whole lot more than that. No offense to the engineers and the product designers out there. Um, but uh, we're talking about um, they're, they're, they're wanting to build these exciting new tools. And so, yeah, fail, you know, go ahead and risk it. Go, go for it. Take the risk. Um, um, if it fails, awesome. We'll, we'll learn more. And the, the, the area where it's harder or, excuse me, easier said than done is um, – allowing that to be true throughout the entire company. Um, And um, when you're setting up, you know, roadmaps and process for how you do your HR team, for how you handle your financing, how you do the sales, how do you do like um, marketing, how all of those um, need to have that applied as well for it to really, really be true. Um, and we don't tend to do that. Like you said, we're hard on ourselves. We're hard on ourselves. We're really hard on others too. Um, when mistakes are made and I, I have, um, not only are mistakes okay, um, but they're necessary. Like we need mistakes, um, because that is how we, that is one way that we learn, um, is when we are doing something and a ball drops and we're like, Oh crap, didn't see that ball. Okay. Missed that one. Or, um, when we are all involved in rolling something out, that's new presence that like, instead of, because the, our instinct is to, okay, I'm rolling this new program out. I have to know everything for everybody in the entire company, as opposed to saying, Hey folks, rolling out this new process that we're all going to be interacting with. It's new for everybody. So let's all, you know, um, 
pay, bring awareness to when it's working and when it's not working. And, and let's point that out in a way that will, will um, help us improve it as opposed to attacking somebody, you know, for something not being, you know, right. Or, and then, and then finally, I'll just, I'll just end with, I, my definition for failure, which is like associated with mistakes, right? My definition of failure is simply um, missing the mark. And, and um, as I was talking about this one time with a client, I realized, oh, that's just the scientific method. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? yeah. Yeah. Like, like you, you're, you're setting a hypothesis. This is where I think I want to go. I want to go to X. X is my deliverable. And so then you set out to do X and you actually end up at Y and you're like, Oh God, how did I, okay. How did I end up at Y? And then you look back and you see, and, 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 Oh, okay. Well, I've learned now, you know, I've learned that, uh, this doing these things didn't get me to X. It got me to Y and, and then et cetera, et cetera. And, and when we can allow for that, like it's all about allowance and permission for those for those interactions with mistakes and failure to be the one that is predominant as opposed to oh you, I did something terrible I made a mistake you're that means I that means I'm awful at my job or it means I don't know what I'm doing or it means you know that um is, is when they become empowering as opposed yeah. to defeating yeah and I, and I think, you know, I mean, I, there are some connections drawing back to some of the stories you told early on um, around needing to know the right answer, mm-hmm. being right versus discovering, testing yeah. hypotheses, understanding the difference. And, and this is different than a Silicon Valley um, setting. But when it comes to, let's say, scientific method and scientific problem solving, coaches have had coming out of Toyota, a manufacturing company will often ask, what, do you, what, what is knowledge and what is an assumption? What do you know and how do you know it? And I think sometimes people, um, they get stubborn in being right, even if data or market forces or other things may be disproving a hypothesis. People sure. dig in, they get stubborn, and they confuse yeah. what we know versus what we're assuming to be true. And I think those are interesting ideas. I'm, I'm involved in a software company, Kinexus, that would still be considered probably still calls a startup. And even in sort of like these older industrial companies, it's interesting that there are, I think, parallel lessons of, you could call them cognitive biases or traps that we fall into. And I'm sure you see that's, that's a lot of what you're coaching people through, it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, we can just take this, make this one nice big little bow here because that's also exactly what I experienced as a pastor, right? Like people dig in to a belief and quote unquote proof for that belief because it makes them, or well, let me back up and say, because they have a perception that that is safe, right? And, um, and the, uh, if and and if I accept a different understanding of this, then that's going to change my whole world. And um, it doesn't even matter if it means, like in the case of the congregations, um, that we will be able to thrive and expand and increase our numbers. 
um, and take good care of our facility and be able to help a bunch of people. I, I would actually rather choose a crumbling facility and, um, and less and less people coming every week uh, because that feels safe. And that feels like I'm going to keep my world intact. So, so in the case of, of business, yeah, right. Like even if you have, you have data and analysis and, and you're presenting some, like this is going to make us more money. Um, it still can be um, very difficult to accept that different worldview, um, which, you know, cognitive bias is an, a fancy way to say, yeah, like I'm, I am committed to this way of looking at the world. <laughs> yeah, all um, evidence or data I, be I damned. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And that is really incredibly powerful for people. For me. I mean, for all of us. I'm not separating myself from any of this. Um, <laughs> sure. You know, evolving, evolving our understandings of the world and how it works. For me is um, that it is ongoing. Right. And it can be um, challenging to allow that to be true. Well, Amy Joe, thank you so much for sharing some of your stories and I think, you know, and, and your reflections and your learning, I think, from your own career and how you've brought that into your work with others. I think it's really interesting to hear about those connections. So thank, yeah, you. thank you. Thank you so much yeah. for being a guest. Yeah, absolutely. It's been a pleasure. So our guest again has been Amy Jo Mathias. Um, her and she is the CEO and founder of Pavo Navigation Coaching. You can learn more about Amy Jo and her firm and her work at pavonavigation.com. And again, I'll make sure there's a link to that in the show notes. So um, thanks again. Really, really interesting discussion today. Thank you for that. Yeah, you're welcome. This has been fun, Mark. Thanks. Well, thanks again to our guest, Amy Jo Mathias. Again, for show notes, links, and more, you can go to markgraven.com slash mistake69. And I hope this podcast inspires you to reflect on your own mistakes, how you can learn from them or turn them into a positive. I've had listeners tell me they've started being more open and honest about mistakes in their work, and they're trying to create a workplace culture where it's safe to speak up about problems because that leads to more improvement and better business results. If you have feedback or a story to share, you can email me, myfavoritemistakepodcast at gmail.com. And again, our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. Since every podcast asks you to do it, it would be a mistake if I didn't ask you to please follow, rate, and review. But most importantly, thank you. Thank you for listening.